I will have more to say throughout the night, but I'm going to go ahead and get the show rolling and let you know that one special thing that we do here at LIC Reading Series, because we are so proud to be a reading series in Queens, is that I ask each of our authors to share um, a, a brief anecdote, some fact, some personal connection, something to Queens um, before they read from their work. So you're going to hear that from each of our Hi, readers. this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our May 9th, 2017 event, featuring Megan Abbott, Julie Button, and Sarah Gerard. Because we're so proud to be in Queens, I do ask each of our readers to share a brief anecdote about Queens before they read from their work. So you will hear Megan, Julie, and Sarah each sharing a little something about Queens before they read. If you want to hear the panel discussion from this event, just listen to our next episode. And now let's dive into LIC Bar, where I'm introducing our first reader, Sarah Gerard. So let's begin with Sarah Gerard. Sarah Gerard is the author of the essay collection Sunshine State, the novel Binary Star. Author of the essay collection Sunshine State, the novel Binary Star, which was a finalist for the LA Times First Fiction Prize and two chapbooks, most recently BFF. Her short stories, essays, interviews, and criticism have appeared in the New York Times, Granta, New York Magazine's The Cut, The Paris Review Daily, The Los Angeles Review of Books, Book Forum, Joyland, Vice, Bomb Magazine, and other journals as well as anthologies for Joyland and the Saturday Evening Post. She's busy. She's been supported by fellowships and residencies from Yado, Tin House, and Platform. She writes a monthly column on food for Hazlitt and teaches writing in New York City. And I do want to say that we have a storybook shop has Sunshine State here. Tonight, um, NPR called it a lucid atmospheric essay collection, and the New York Times calls the opening essay a knockout, a lurid red heart wrapped in barbed wire. Let's give it up for Sarah Gerard. It's really embarrassing to hear your own bio read aloud. <laughs> it's like, um, I'm going to move this so you guys can see me because I'm kind of small. Okay. Um, I want to make, I just want to say thank you to a couple of people. One of them is Catherine for inviting me to be here tonight. Um, another is for my editor who has come to every New York area reading that I have done. <laughs> and I love her so much. <laughs> um, and I also want to thank my friend Patty Cottrell for being here. She typically lives in LA, so it's special that she's here tonight. So I'm going to read from the first essay in the book, um, BFF because um, I'm just in the mood to read that tonight. I'll begin our story with that afternoon. We hadn't spoken for a year, like so many years when we didn't speak, when you pulled up next to me on my walk to work and offered me a ride. I climbed into the passenger seat of your Dodge Omni, knowing I'd begun another cycle and still another, feeling that I had been tricked again, that I should have refused. You caught me in a moment of not knowing. If I start there, I should say that by this time, we'd already gotten the tattoos that linked our right and left hips together into a single message, forever and ever. And I should say that, at a glance, my text appeared to spell beaver. <laughs> Too perfect that yours bore the autonomous word while mine was dependent. Do you know mine is covered up? I hope yours remains. I hope you still see it in the mirror and it surprises you some mornings in your half-sleep. You're the only woman I've loved this way, enough to want to hurt you. 
I'm reminded of your first tattoo on your back, tramp stamp, so Florida. You told me you orgasmed while getting it, your nerve endings so close to the surface of your skin. Like many things you told me, I don't know if it's true. Even 20 years after we met, I can't tell when you're lying, but I've learned to assume you often are. I've learned to hope you are sometimes. Our friendship was a sticky web. Our friendship was a black box. Our friendship was a swamp full of cotton mouths. Another of your tattoos, an alligator eating up your left arm. Is it left, like mine, or right? Are we mirrors even now? The tattoo covers another, some text you got when I got my text. Mine reads, resilient in the clutch of darkness. Yours, your blues ain't like my blues. Whose pain is deeper? Who wins? I have to start over like we started over so many times with the call you made in our 19th summer. We hadn't spoken for a year. I went away to college in New York. You stayed in Florida. You didn't go to school. Nobody in your family went to school. If I could quantify what came between us, the cost of tuition. If I could quantify what came between us, the cost of your mother's one-bedroom rent subtracted from my parents' four-bedroom house in a gated neighborhood. If I could quantify what came between us, the cost of diapers, formula, hospital bills. The last time we spoke before this, we planned to get coffee and you never called me back. You never showed, you disappeared. That day, I wore a pink slip I'd turned into a dress, copycatting your style, which has always been effortless. You shinier, you prettier, you taller, you thinner, more popular. In middle school, you had friends and I had you. You made it so that you were my only friend. Don't think I didn't know. Was it really so important so often to know you were first? You were first. It's stupid I'm still mad at you for this. It's stupid I'm even still mad at you for things you did when we were 10. When you told me you'd gone on a date with my boyfriend, he was hardly my boyfriend. And what was I wearing on the day you finally called, a full year later, linking summer to summer? I don't know now. But I was driving that same car some thousand miles away from you, and you asked me to spell your daughter's name. I got it wrong, and you laughed. Wasn't I supposed to be an English major? Yes, but I'd never heard that name. It's unusual, like yours. It means pure in the language of your ancestors. In another, it means sea, like the gulf we grew up swimming in together. The many, many ways were the same. Blue eyes, brown hair, small breasts, freckles, and the moles on our bellies, which we called the moon and stars. Your daughter has your eyes. Your body. You were always biting your fingernails. Your fingers are long and thin like your arms, like your legs, like your nose. Do you remember saying my nose was a ski slope? You traced your finger down and it leapt into the air and you laughed your loud big mouth laugh. Your body. Years later, you asked me why I didn't tell you that you were too good for stripping. I didn't know you wanted me to tell you. My body. Do you remember saying my shoulders were broad, that I couldn't wear the tank top we'd just bought together, two of the same, and how I didn't wear it, but you did? My body. Or the afternoon when you got on my bus without permission and we walked home through a tornado. I wore a black flowered skirt with a matching tank top and leather platforms. We took shelter in the covered walkway of a Baptist church and shivered and laughed as the rain painted everything white. Your body, or the funny face you made by pinching your nose closed and inhaling hard, crossing your eyes, or the face you made when I borrowed your pants and laughed so hard I wet them in the back of our friend's dad's car coming back from an eighth grade party. <laughs> Yours. <laughs> Yours. You were nearly paralyzed giving birth the first time. You didn't want an epidural, but the nurse convinced you and then botched the administration. You told her something was wrong, but she didn't believe you. You told me this many years later. 
Yours, you dreamt of being a model. Mine, I split my face open, jumping from a freight train I hopped with the crew change you gave me. I would never model. Later, I embellished my tattooed text with a half-sleeve train emerging from a tunnel. Mine, you said my ass was big, and I still believe you. Ours, we slept with our hips together, holding hands. The year we met, my parents moved my family from the house where you first knew me, where my father answered the door our first time together and saw your mother standing on the other side of the screen and called her by name. We joked that they had been lovers. We joked or we wished. You were the closest thing I had to a sister. I knew your body like it was my body. I knew it as it was changing. I knew when you got your period before me because I could smell it and because you told me about it, drew me pictures of it told me everything you could about how the blood clotted, how it felt, how it tasted. I knew your breasts as they were changing into shapes I could hold in my hands. I saw your naked body so close to mine so many times in the daylight and the darkness and the water and the moon. I saw you pee. I saw your pubic hair changing color. I saw your face getting older. I loved you when you grabbed me by the sides of my head and smelled my hair. I do that to my husband now. You do that to your husband now and to your children. You loved me like a child and a sister and a mother. You were my twin. I loved you when you held my hand, expecting that I would hold yours back, and I did. We ran down the streets of my neighborhood, prepubescent, wearing nothing but skin, hiding behind trash cans when trucks turned corners and caught us in spotlights. We climbed into other people's boats, suspended from docks over dark water, hearing fish below hurl themselves into the air, smacking down on the surface. I lost my virginity so soon after you because of you. You were the first one I told. I wrote you a letter the day it happened and drew you pictures wanting you to see. My mother found it and put me on the pill. I lied and said that I loved him. He was just some boy. When your mother finally earned enough to move you into the condo, we held onto the sides of your hot tub and fucked the jets with our knees above the water. It was there that you met your daughter's father, lying by the side of the pool in the sticky sun, turning brown the way I never could. You wanted to catch his eye and it worked. You knew you were pregnant as soon as you stood from the grass where you lay with your daughter's father. I see you walking your bicycles back to the duplex you shared with him then, with its haunted Murphy bed and its daisy-colored sunroom, the fear in your face and the hexagonal sidewalk sections beneath you, and this is something you've said to me that I believe. Your mother slid down the, chute of a the laundry chute of a foster home on sheets of wax paper. She described the sound of climbing back up, boom, boom. We were teenagers when she gave you to the state because you couldn't be trusted with her or with yourself. There were times I knew you hated her. You'd come home to her on the recliner, corpse-like, TV on the floor, drink in hand, misty cigarettes on the particle board table, overweight, hair dyed red, made up, drunk. She called me to complain about you. Did you know that? She took your daughter when you were coked up and homeless and could no longer protect her. You couldn't even protect yourself. I think of the midnight when you said you were going to break into your childhood home because it was somewhere to sleep. When you lived in that house, your bedroom was a converted living room. A door led from your room to the front of the house. You both entered from the back. A boy lives in your neighborhood, Luke, your first love, the first male since your father to touch your bare skin. You were seven in the attic of another boy's house. There were two others there. You told me this story. And nearby, the day we went exploring in the ruins of an abandoned house, I leapt from one wooden plank to another and landed on a rusty nail and cried. We were 10. I was wearing white keds and bobby socks. By the time we got back to your house, the heel of my shoe was red and I was leaning on you heavily. 
Your mother shook her head as she called my mother. I remember your house was blue. You moved out of it the year after I met you into the low-rent apartment across from the Bosnian children you found annoying because you didn't understand they were refugees from genocide. You came home alone after school and ate cheese quesadillas from the microwave, a survival technique I found strange until later when I first heard you say the word poor. You turned 12. At your party, a man passed us and returned to where we, cha sorry, <laughs> to where we chased one another on the grass. We hid from him behind a vined white lattice, giggling at the fact of his maleness. You broke loose from us, screaming, waving something above your head, a sun hat you knew to be afraid. I walked as far down the driveway as my parents' cordless phone allowed me the night when you said you were going away. All the houses slept with their eyes open, and the bush by our garage smelled of jasmine, and I was trying to cry, but I couldn't, so I had to pretend. I pretended other times with you. I pretended we were still best friends when we got our tattoos. I pretended to take your side when my father fired you after giving you a job when you were desperate. I pretended sympathy when you told me you wanted to kill yourself. Your daughter was three. How could you? I pretended to trust you many times when I didn't, and you shouldn't have trusted me either. What you were wearing on the day we came to pick you up at the girls' home, my parents and I, and nobody asked us our names or made us sign things or even saw you leaving, a coral-colored vintage dress cinched at the waist, a necklace that hung between your breasts. You had gained weight from the Paxil, and you called the dress your Marilyn. You wore, maybe, plastic flip-flops and anklets, short hair, and I wondered if you wished they cared more, the people at the home. I wondered who had cared about you other than me. You can love someone without trusting her. You know this better than I do. I loved you completely. I love how you think water can feel things. I love that you always smell of sage. I love that you decoupaged your coffee table. I love how you think you're punk rock, even now. You were diagnosed, but you were never crazy. You were caught between the fear of leaving your mother and the fear of staying, caught in the horror of being complicit in your endangerment every time she asked you to fix her a drink, caught in the need to protect her, though she didn't protect you, caught between the habit of being a child, obedient, and the need to rebel as a woman. There was so much I didn't know about you, and I'm angry with you for thinking that I did. I'm, I'm angry with myself for failing to see it, for being naive for so long. I hurt you. Twice you ran to Miami. First, when you fled that home with another girl who you told me looked like a pixie. I wonder if that was true. Second, when you awoke in a hotel shower covered in blood with your daughter half a state away and no way to escape the room. I hope that was a lie. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, this is like, I think you guys understand that New York Times description of the first essay now, right? Uh, yeah, and just like, I don't know, the relationship between girls and young women and, and like the lies and the stories that we tell each other. The other thing though, Sarah, we didn't hear your Queens anecdote. Oh shit, come up here. I'm so sorry. So here's my Queen's anecdote. So when I was 22, I had just gotten out of rehab and I like was still crazy. And I went traveling with this boy um, and we were just like playing punk rock for like two months and we hopped some freight trains and it all ended really terribly. But part of our trip brought us here to New York um, where I had lived, I had lived for four years on Long Island when I was getting my, my bachelor's degree. 
And so I had some friends in New York that we could stay with, and he was really into the New York Dolls. Do you guys know the New York Dolls? <laughs> okay. So he was like this punk rock boy, and he was really into the New York Dolls, and he really wanted to visit Johnny Thunder's grave, which is in Queens. So we, that was like one of, we were here for like three days, and we spent an entire day just like traveling to Queens on the, on the train so that we could visit Johnny Thunder's grave and get some pictures of ourselves with it, with our disposable cameras. So that's my that's my Queen's anecdote. Is that I could take you, I could take you there. Okay. Um, our next reader, guys. This is a first for the LIC reading series. This is our first returning reader. So that means like people will come back, which is a good sign. Um, Megan Abbott, right? Okay, that's it, that's it. <laughs> Megan Abbott is the Edgar Award winning author of eight novels, eight, just a few, including Dare Me, The Fever, The Fever, I think you were here last with The Fever, yes. And her latest, You Will Know Me, which is amazing. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Wall Street Journal, and in anthologies, including the best American mystery stories. She's currently a staff writer on HBO's forthcoming David Simon show, The Deuce. Um, I do want to tell you that uh, about You Will Know Me, uh, New York Times uh, says that Abbott is in top form with this novel, and the Washington Post calls it a masterful tale that's both suspenseful and an eerily accurate portrait of the way teenage and parental clicks operate. She lives in Queens, guys. Let's give it up for Megan Abbott. Oh, I'm so happy to be back. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, I'm not gonna touch it again now. <laughs> That's the rule, right? <laughs> That's the rule, okay, okay. Um, since I live in Queens, Forest Hills, home of the Ramones, uh, I, uh, yes, that's right. Um, I, I have too many stories, so I'm not gonna tell a story, but I'm just gonna tell, uh, make a shout out for my favorite store in Queens, which is in Forest Hills, and it's one of the reasons I moved to Forest Hills, which is called Magic Corsets. And it's on Austin Street, if you've ever been there, you know it. And as long as that stays, I know Queens will be my place to live. Because uh, we have chain stores and we have hipster places now, but Magic Corsets has this amazing display window with a cornucopia of mannequins of all different kinds of physiques, seasonally dressed, often in nighties and lingerie and garters, and it has one of the mannequins is motorized and her legs are in the air and she does these sort of shimmy with her legs. Um, and I pass it every morning and in, in Instagram it regularly. And I feel like Queens will always be Queens as long as magic corsets is in Forest Hills. Um, okay, so um, I'm going to read just a, just a little bit from um, You Will Know Me, which came out last year. It's now in paperback. Um, and it's, yeah, it's about the parents of uh, a gymnast prodigy, or they believe her to be a prodigy. Um, and this is just from the very beginning, so no, no context required. I'm old. Um, <clears throat> okay. It had been there from the beginning, maybe even before the beginning. In proud parent moments, of which there were too many to count, she and Eric would talk about feeling Devon in the womb, her body arching and minnowing and promising itself to them both. Soon it turned to kicking, 
kicking with such vigor that one night Katie woke to a popping sound and breathless keeled over in pain. Eric stared helplessly at the way her stomach seemed to spasm with alien horrors. What was inside her, they wondered, her rib poking over her sternum, dislocated while she slept. It was no alien, but it was something extraordinary. It was Devon, a marvel, a girl wonder, a prodigy, a star. Devon kicking her way out, 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 and they had made her, and in some ways she had made them. For years, Katie would touch the spot the rib had poked as if she could still feel the tender lump. It was reassuring. It reminded her that it had always been there, that force in Devon, that fire. Like that line in the poem, the one she'd read in school a lifetime ago, back when life felt so cramped and small, when she never thought anything so grand could ever happen. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower. She's been doing it since she was three. How is that even possible? That's what other people, never gym people, always said. Making private judgments, unspoken charges of helicopter parenting, unmet maternal or paternal ambitions, Olympic fantasies. No one ever believed Katie and Eric had never cared about sports or even competition. Eric had played high school baseball indifferently. Katie had never been athletic at all, devoting her adolescence to art class and boys and sneaking off to see bands, the vestige of which was a fight-like-a-girl tattoo snaking around her left thigh. My three-year-old just wanted to play, they'd say smugly. We just let her play, as if it had ever been a choice or a decision. It started as play, Eric always told people. It started with the trampoline. Then he'd tell them how one long Sunday he'd installed it in the yard, leaning over the auger rented from the hardware store, a pile of chicken wire, empty beer bottles at his feet. The trampoline was the better story, the easier story, but it wasn't the truth. Because the trampoline came after the accident, and the accident was how it began, how that force in her found its fuse. Three-year-old Devin, barefoot, running across the lawn to Daddy, her foot sliding on a grass mound, she stumbled into their idling, rust-eaten lawnmower, her foot so tiny it slipped behind the blade guard, the steel shearing off two toes and a squeak of soft foot flesh. A few feet away, face white with panic, Eric slid to his knees beside her and somehow managed to pluck both toes from the grass. Packed in ice, they looked like pink peas, and Katie held them in her hands as Eric drove with careering ferocity six miles to the hospital, where doctors tried and failed to re reattach them like stringing beads, Devin's face blue and wet. It could have been worse, their pediatrician, Dr. Yossarian, told them later. Sometimes with the riding mowers, the whole foot pops off, and he made an appalling pucker sound with his mouth. But what can we do, Eric asked, even as Dr. Yossarian assured them Devin would be fine. There must be something. So Dr. Yossarian suggested kitty soccer or ice skating or tumbling. It'll help with balance, he said. In years to come, this would feel like a moment of shimmering predestiny, in the same way everything about Devin's life eventually came to feel mythic within the family. Fate, destiny, retroactivated by a Sears craftsman. That fall, Katie drove Devin to the Tumble Angels gym on Old Taylor Road and signed them both up for Mommy and Me, Movers and Shakers. At first, she'll be overly cautious, Dr. Yossarian warned, but try to push her. Except it was just the opposite. Within a few weeks, Devin was forward and backward rolling, chin-ups, handstands, cartwheels as accomplished as those of girls twice her age. 
the human rubber band, Katie called her, Supergirl, Eric called her, monkey bar, superstar. And in some mysterious way, it was as if the foot were helping her. Frankenfoot, Katie dubbed it, making it their private joke. Show mommy how your Frankenfoot works. By the end of the first month, Devon had graduated to tiny tumblers, and within a year, she was one of the gym's VIP. Her cubbyhole sprayed silver and festooned with sticker stars. Watching her on the practice beam, Katie would think, this piece of wood is four inches wide, two feet in the air, four inches, and I'm going to let my daughter plant her dimpled feet on that and do kicks and dips. Do the O, the other girls would say, cheering as Devon arched her back from a handstand until her tiny bottom touched the top of her head. Every now and then, Eric would lift her up in the air to see if her backbone was really there. Prodigy, Katie whispered in her most private thoughts, but never said aloud. Eric said it. He said it a lot. And so Eric installed the trampoline. Hours, days devoted to making the yard ready for her talent, laying thick mats like dominoes, just as he would eventually do in the basement, hanging a pull-up bar, scraping the concrete bumps off the floor, covering it with mats and carpet remnants, wrapping foam around the ceiling posts for Devon. And so gymnastics became the center for them, the spine for everything after that. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Megan Abbott. Oh, that book is so good. I remember when it first came out during the during the Olympics, during gymnastics. And it, was, just an it was amazing. Um, and I love how the tension kind of builds right away with that lawnmower scene, which I remember the first time I read the book, I was not yet a parent. And now I have a son, and that terrifies me even more. <laughs> In any case, Julie Button is from Northern Michigan. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Cosmopolitan, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, Slate, Electric Literature, and One Teen Story, among other publications. I will also point out that you are a debutante at the One Story Ball this Friday. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, One Story is this great publication that publishes one story at a time and anytime one of their previously published authors has their debut book they bring them out as a literary debutante at their annual gala fundraiser and if it's a great dance party if you want to go it's Friday all right <laughs> enough of that um, she teaches fiction at Marymount Manhattan College and is director of writing programs at catapult she lives in Brooklyn but she came here to Queens Marlena, which we have here, and it's wonderful. It's her debut novel, um, The Atlantic, says it explores teenage ferocity of female friendship, which is true. And the New York Times calls it a generous, sensitive novel of true feeling. Let's give it up for Julie Bunn. <laughs> um, hi. I'm really happy to be here for a lot of reasons. Thank you for having me, Catherine. First of all, Megan Abbott and Sarah Gerard are two of my favorite writers who both of both of them influence this book in different ways. Um, so it's really special to read with them. I also, aside from doing those weird photo shoots, I did a reading in Amsterdam that no one came to. <laughs> so I'm really happy to see all of you here tonight after that happened last night and I had to kind of make the best of it and it was really embarrassing. Um, so, okay, 
Uh, oh, my queen's anecdote. Okay. I, I thought about this on the train over here because I'd forgotten about that requirement for the event. So this is a little slapdash. Um, though my grandmother is from Queens, so I have a soft spot for, for this place. Uh, I had the worst Valentine's Day of my life in Queens. I was not, I was feeling a little bit freer to tell this story before my husband surprised me and came to this event. Um, he doesn't know this story, but I, I dated this guy for a long time in college who's a playwright. And there's a... Catherine, maybe you know what it's called. There's like a bar with a stage and a restaurant in Long Island City, kind of near here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So my college boyfriend wrote a play that he performed at Creaking Cave. And it was like the first night was Valentine's Day, which was annoying, but it was fine because he's an artist and I supported it. Um, so I, I just went, you know, I had read the play. He was in the play, but I didn't know that there was what in the script was just a, a kiss was actually like a very passionate makeout scene <laughs> that he was in with another girl. So I, I, I wasn't prepared. He didn't tell me because he didn't want to upset me. So I just, I, and I wouldn't have been maybe because I want to be cool, you know, but I was so sad because it was like happening on stage and it was really full of passion. Um, and then at the end of the play, he said, happy Valentine's Day to my girlfriend. <laughs> Who's like really chill, <laughs> and I was like in the audience, um, and embarrassed. Uh, and it all happened here in Long Island City. And then we got in a terrible fight, and we broke up. But now I'm happily married to someone else. Um, yeah. uh, okay, so I'm gonna just read from the beginning of my book. Um, it's called Marlena. It came out a month ago. Um, yeah. Tell me what you can't forget, and I'll tell you who you are. I switch off my apartment light and she comes with the dark. The train's eye widens in the tunnel and there she is on the tracks, blonde hair swinging. One of our old songs starts playing and I lose myself right in the middle of the cereal aisle. Sometimes, late at night, when I'm fumbling with the key outside my apartment door, my eyes meet my reflection in the hallway mirror and I see her, waiting. Marlena and I are in Ryder's van. That morning, while he was still asleep, she stole the keys from the pocket of his jeans. The springs burst gloriously, stupidly into summer, and we're wearing drugstore flip-flops, hair tacky with salt at the temples, breath all cigarettes and cherry lip gloss and yesterday's wine. I kick my sandals off and unfold my legs on the dash, press my toes against the windshield the way I do when it's just Marlena and me. Ryder says I've ruined his car, that the spots won't rub off but I don't care. Marlena painted my nails, propping my foot on her thigh. High alert orange, her color. Our windows are rolled all the way down. The breeze loosens the hair from my ponytail, sends it in tangles across my face so that everything I see is broken. We're on our way to the beach for a normal day, for holding our breath underwater until our lungs beg for the breath-stealing slap of a wave against our stomachs and sour, fizzy mouthfuls of beer stolen from unattended coolers. We'll track the sun's movement with the angles of our towels and pass the same two magazines back and forth until the light sinks into the water. When we leave, unburying our feet from cold sand, we'll have sunburns, then fevers. We're pretending to be girls with minor secrets, listening to Joni Mitchell with the volume turned up, Every line is a message written just for us. I sing so loud Marlena can't hear herself, tells me shh, 
tells me I'm making her brain hurt. But in this memory, I only sing louder. Marlena puts pressure on the gas and the car climbs the big hill on the dead-end road that leads to the lake. The speedometer leaps. We pass 55, the limit on country roads, and hit 70 within a minute. The car fills with wind so pushy and loud my hair whips against my neck and I can't hear the music anymore. My voice hitches and I swing my feet to the floor. I try to roll my window up, but Marlena locks it from her side. When she looks at me, grinning, I feel the car edge over to the shoulder, tires spitting gravel. She swerves back into the lane and the speedometer quivers before it jumps past 85. Marlena's ponytail has almost fallen out and I wonder whether she can see. If maybe she doesn't realize that we're up to 90 now and that underneath the wind there's a new smell, bitter and hot, the van's organs burning. We go faster and faster. I giggle a little, a little and tell her to slow down and a few seconds later to slow the fuck down and when she doesn't answer I shout that she's crazy and scaring me and I want to get out of the goddamn car and that we're going to die please she's going to fucking kill us. We hit 100 miles per hour zipping up another hill the car thrumming. When we reach the top the tires lift off the pavement and when we land I slam against the glove compartment catching myself with my forearms. She doesn't break and I wrestle my seatbelt on. Lake Michigan, Caribbean blue and winking light rears up in our faces. We're half a mile or less from the drop-off, the parking lot, the path to the beach. She's not going to stop. And for a second, I feel something foreign, a rage that's equal parts hunger and fear. Do it, I think. Do it. And my stomach's in my throat, but I'm so tired of being the one to say no. Be careful. Stop. What if I just keep going, she shouts. Later, I realized she was probably very high because that would have been around the time of the pharmaceutical bottle of Oxy, 40s, pills that loom in my memory of her like an extra feature. Her eyes, the scraggly tips of her unwashed hair. Now the lake is bigger than the sky. After we go under, how long will it take me to kick out the passenger side window, my flip-flops floating to the roof of the car, my body shrieking for air? Marlena is a bad swimmer. But then, no more than a dozen car lengths from the drop-off, we start to slow. The van weaves back and forth across the dotted line, careening onto the outer edges, edges of its wheels. I jolt forward, the seatbelt knifing into the space between my breasts. The car sighs, its engine ticking with relief. I am almost crying, my pulse a gallop, and I hate her for knowing it. Oh, come on, Marlena says, but she's out of breath and it takes her too long. Do you really think I'd let anything bad happen to you? Hives, the kind she gets when she's anxious or excited, spread in a fine red lace from her collarbone up along the jumpy tendons of her neck, ending at her jaw. She scrapes a set of fingernails against my kneecap, a small circle that opens outward, shivering through me. I want to spit right in her face. I want to walk away from everything she's made me do and all the ways I've changed so bad that for an instant it's possible and I almost do. I tuck my hands under my thighs so she won't see them shaking and stare at the pine tree deodorizer. It flutters like we're still moving. Cat, she says. It's not a question. I love this wildness. I crave it. So why, when something in me asks if it's worth ruining my life over, do I hear no? I blink hard until the tears are gone. When I laugh, shaking my head, she laughs too, and the horrible thing between us disappears except for one indestructible sliver, mine forever. We grab the plastic bag of snacks from the back seat and trip down the path to the beach. Already I'm forgetting the feeling that seared me minutes before, 
Do it, just do it already, you bitch. She's singing again. California. The part about kissing a sunset pig. The part about coming home. I chase her voice with mine. Joni Mitchell's songs fit Marlena. She was comfortable in higher registers, landing fast on each note, and she could perfectly mirror Joni's trembling strength, the way she turned syllables into hard bells ringing. That's the last time I can remember hearing Marlena sing Calif California, though it couldn't have been. It was one of her favorites, technically, and this was four months at least before she died. She drowned, though not in the way I'd feared that day, rider's van shooting through a guardrail. There was no great splash, no screams from the beach, no rushing lifeguard. She would have liked that better. Marlena suffocated in less than six inches of ice-splintered river, in the woods on the outskirts of downtown Kiwani, a place she had no reason to be at twilight in November. She was wearing one of my old coats and a pair of chewed-up keds that the police would make much of. The tote bag she carried was full of loose change that must have rattled as she walked against that prescription bottle, her pay-as-you-go flip phone. She struck her head neatly, brutally, on a river boulder, and, it is assumed, her body slid just so, unconscious, until mouth and nostrils were submerged in water. Some of the details are facts, but very few. Where she was found, what she wore and carried. She was last seen alive at 5.12 p.m., according to Jimmy, my older brother. His memory of those three numbers blinking on the car clock is distinct. Though, he told me later, frustrated, drunk, he could be remembering what the clock read in the minutes just after she got in the car. It's possible, he said, that 5.12 p.m. was the time he left the house, before he even picked her up. I understand why it bothered him so much, not knowing the timeline for sure. Neither of us really believes that what happened to her was pure accident. Thank you. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens. <laughs>